Welcome to the Crimson Thread. I'm John Behrens, pastor of Restoration Messianic Fellowship in the Boulder-Longmont area of northern Colorado. Our website is crimsonthread.com. This study was recorded during our normal Tuesday evening Bible study. Enjoy the study. Okay, so tonight we're going to finish up Esther, God willing. Last week we finished chapter 7. It ended with what most people think is the high point of the story, which is the killing of Haman. But as we said last time, there's still this problem in that the decree that Haman got sent out is still in effect. So now we go to chapter 8. On that day, King Ahasuerus gave to Queen Esther the house of Haman, the enemy of the Jews, on that day being the day that Haman was killed. And Mordecai came before the king, for Esther had told what he was to her. And the king took off his signet ring, which he had taken from Haman, and gave it to Mordecai. And Esther sent Mordecai over the house of Haman. So what's happened is the Haman's been killed. The king gives his house and estate to the queen. The queen introduces her cousin Mordecai, and then the queen puts Mordecai in charge of Haman's property. Then verse 3, then Esther spoke again to the king. Now, the thing that isn't obvious at this point is two months have gone by. As you read this, it sounds like it's all part of the same scenario. It's not. And the reason we know that is because the original decree went out in the month of Nisan. The next decree that goes out is going to go out 66 days later. So although the narrative reads like, we killed Haman, then we gave uh, Esther his house. Then Esther came in and pleaded for the nation. It sounds like that's all happening at once. It is not. There's two months that goes on. And that's extremely significant because what it says is that the king really doesn't give a rip about the Jews. If it wasn't for Esther's pleading with him, he would never have revoked that decree. And there's still people out there that are licking their chops at the prospect of being able to eradicate the Jews in their neighborhood and take over their property. If you go back to Daniel, same empire, different emperor, different era, we have something similar, which is the king's advisors had mousetrapped the king into signing a decree that if anybody worshipped anything other than the Persian gods, he was to be thrown into a lion's den. Daniel didn't make a big fuss about it, but he continued to pray in the normal way three times a day. And he did it in his house, but he did it with the windows open. In other words, he wasn't hiding it, but he wasn't doing it out in public either. He wasn't trying to make a point, but he was not going to obey the decree. And so, of course, the advisors then go to the king, I think it's Darius, Darius, and said, uh, you know that decree you signed, O king, the one that can't be revoked? Well, it turns out this guy Daniel is violating that decree, and according to your decree, O king, he needs to be thrown into the lion's den. Darius's response is very different from Ahasuerus. I'm now in Daniel chapter 6, verse 14. Then the king, when he heard these words, was much distressed and set his mind to deliver Daniel. And he labored till the sun went down to rescue him. Then these men came by agreement to the king and said to the king, Know, O king, that it is the law of the Medes and the Persians 
that no injunction or ordinance that the king establishes can be changed. When the king finds out what he's been trapped into, he is very upset, and he does everything in his power to figure out how to get this thing reversed. And when Daniel finally survives his night with the lions, he is so ticked that he grabs all of the people who mousetrapped him and has them thrown into the lions along with their families. Hazorus isn't doing any of that. In fact, he's sitting around silently for 60 days while this decree is just sort of crunching along and people are getting ready and all that kind of stuff. He shows no inclination whatsoever to do anything about it. It's important to understand that this plea that Esther is going to make has got this gap in there during which time Mordecai can't make the request because Mordecai is sort of getting himself established as an advisor to the king. And in fact, uh, it, you'll see later on he's doing things like establishing regular taxation and you know, basically doing a Daniel or a Joseph where he's getting the empire sorted out and so it'll run right. Now let's look at Esther. So now we're down to verse 3 in chapter 8. Then Esther spoke again to the king. She fell at his feet and wept and pleaded with him to avert the evil plan of Haman the Agagite and the plot that he had devised against the Jews. When the king held out the golden scepter to Esther, Esther rose and stood before the king. All right, now notice this is very different than the last time this happened. In both cases, Esther comes into the king unbidden. You know, he, he's obviously not asked for her here either, just like the first time she went into him. And in both cases, he holds out his golden scepter, which is to say, okay, she's not to be killed. In other words, I accept her coming into my presence. However, in the first instance, what he said was, what is your request? It will be granted you up to half of the kingdom. There is no such phrase here. She's back in his face, and he is not pleased. He doesn't want to have her killed. He doesn't want to go through the queen search again. But this is not... My beautiful queen, who I haven't been with in a month, is so anxious to see me that she's risked her life to come into my presence and invite me and Haman to dinner. Now, she's come back into his presence uninvited, and he is obviously not quite so happy because he doesn't make this generous offer of, what is it you want, my queen? It will be granted to you up to half of the kingdom. That's missing. Verse 5, Esther rose and stood before the king, and she said, If it please the king, and if I have found favor in his sight, and if the thing seems right before the king, and I am pleasing in his eyes, let an order be written to revoke the letters devised by Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, which he wrote to destroy the Jews who are in all the provinces of the king. For how can I bear to see the calamity that is coming to my people? Or how can I bear to see the destruction of my kindred? All right, now Esther is making six statements here. The first one is formulaic, if it please the king. So what she's doing there is appealing to his interests. So she's saying, if, this is, if it please the kings, and if I have found favor in your sight. And that's different. One is a, an appeal to his self-interest. In other words, if this pleases you, please do it. The second one is what the author of The Dawn calls boss politics. In other words, I'm coming before you looking for a favor, and you are the local ward healer, mob boss, whatever, and if you do me this favor, I will be in your debt. 
So it's useful to you to do me a favor in order to buy my loyalty. It's the politics of Chicago, if you will. I'm coming up to the boss to get a favor, but when I do, the boss knows now he's got a call on me in the future when he needs a favor. It's that kind of a thing. So the first two of these appeals have something in it for the king. The first is, he may just want to do it, in which case it's in his interest. The second is, he will put out a chip that he can perhaps call back at some future time. The appeals are three sets of two. So one and two are an appeal to the interest of the king. Three and four are an appeal to justice. And then five and six are an appeal to power. The appeal to justice, it can be dangerous, but what it does is it puts the king in a box because she's just appealed to his interests. Now what she's doing is saying, uh, oh, by the way, king, you have a responsibility to something beyond your own interest. And to say that to a narcissist like Ahasuerus is a bit dicey. What she's saying is, if it seems right, in your eyes. In other words, if my appeal resonates with your sense of justice, and oh, by the way, it should. So you've got the whole court there watching this, and she has just appealed to his sense of justice. In all of human society, but especially in the East, it's one of the things that is the mark of a wise and compassionate ruler that his sense of justice can be appealed to. What you're doing is you're sort of lifting him above the thug level. In other words, this guy may have risen to power by being a thug and, and assassinating his predecessor and all that kind of stuff. But what you're doing is you're trying to lift him above that and appeal to justice. The, the second half of that is, if I am worthy, which is again an appeal to justice on her personal. In other words, not only is doing the right thing for the Jews the right thing to do, but I am coming before you, and I am worthy of being heard. So that's the second set of three that she's making. And then the third one is an appeal to power. I cannot bear to see this evil. I cannot bear to witness this destruction. That's her third set of two. And I'm asserting that that's an appeal to power, and the question is, whose power? She says, I, I, Esther, cannot bear to see this evil. I cannot bear to witness this destruction. Her power. There's going to be trouble in the house, honey, if we don't get this sorted out. That's what she's saying. She has demonstrated at this point that she is, in fact, formidable because she has managed to take down the viceroy of the empire without him even knowing what happened until he was dead. He has just had the experience several years before at this point, of getting crosswise of his queen, having in that process then to go through the business of getting another one, which, which apparently he didn't care for. She has, as I say, proved herself to be formidable in her own right. And what she's saying is, if this goes by, I'm not going to be able to stand it. What that is going to play out as, he doesn't know. Certainly he can you know, quit visiting her quarters forever, but if he doesn't get rid of her, she's still ricocheting around the court doing stuff. Most likely, he'd never see it coming. I mean, this guy is, is a narcissist, but he's not stupid. Having watched this babe in action one time, I don't think he wants to see her in action again. 
Anyway, what I'm suggesting to you is she's made three separate appeals. One to his interests, two to, two to justice, and then third to power. She's basically saying, remember what happened the last time he got crosswise of the queen? Oh, by the way, remember what I did to Haman two months ago? Now, at this point, quite frankly, the king capitulates. And he does a, another one of his feats of political jujitsu. Remember when we had the confrontation with Vashti? And he did a lateral arabesque and turned it into, what do the advisors say when the queen refuses to accede to a request of the king? And she, he elevates this domestic spat to the level of state policy. He's about to do the same kind of thing. So let's look. Seven. Then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther and Mordecai the Jew, Behold, I have given Esther the house of Haman, and they have hanged him on the gallows, because he intended to lay hands on the Jews. So notice what he's just done. The reason I got rid of Haman was not because I was worried about him getting too big a head. I was worrying that he was getting too powerful. I was afraid that he might be moving on me. It's now this noble, he tried to kill the Jews, so I had him hanged. So now what he's done is he has shifted the whole thing, and so now when he capitulates and allows Mordecai to put out a new directive, it suddenly looks magnanimous on his part, and it looks like the just and the statesmanlike thing to do. But the fact of the matter is, he didn't do this on his own. Had Esther not come in, he never would have done it. And in this entire book, this man never makes a decision that isn't forced by someone else. There is nowhere in this story that the king takes independent action just because the king gets an idea and thinks it's a good idea and says, all right, this is the new policy and we're going to go with it because I just thought up a new, great new idea. He is always reacting because that's his nature. He wants to be liked. He wants to be revered. He wants people to look up to him. And if you start making decisions, you're going to tick somebody off. In point of fact, his wife has just backed him into a corner and forced him to act. And in an act of self-preservation, if nothing else, he has now switched it, made it look like what he did was noble. And now he is delegating to Mordecai the authority and the responsibility of writing the decree. But notice what he says. Verse 7 again. Then King Azariah said to Queen Esther and to Mordecai the Jew, Behold, I have given Esther the house of Haman, and they have hanged him on the gallows, because he intended to lay hands on the Jews. But you may write as you please with regard to the Jews in the name of the king, and seal it with the king's seal. For an edict written in the name of the king and sealed with the king's ring cannot be revoked. In other words, you go ahead and write your thing, but you will not cancel the previous one. I will suggest to you that in his mind, he's already done plenty for him. He killed Haman and he gave them his estate. You know, what more do you want kind of thing? So now at this point, the action leaves Esther and goes to Mordecai. Now, Mordecai has a problem. The problem is that there are lots and lots of anti-Semites in the empire. And the anti-Semites have been given the authority to do whatever they want with the Jews and take their stuff and kill all their 
families. It is not going to be enough simply to say the Jews get to fight back. Because what's going to happen if it's just the Jews get to fight back, you're going to have lots and lots of towns where the local Jewish population gets wiped out. And yeah, you may lose a few anti-Semites in the process, but these guys have been preparing for this for two months longer. They have got their appetites peaked. They have also got the tacit or explicit support of the local governments. So what he's got to do is he has got to change the dynamics of power. The thing about the book of Esther is it's all about power. And remember that when the edict went out from Haman, there wasn't anybody in the empire that stood up for the Jews. Nobody. You only get somebody to stand up against Haman when he's laid out horizontal on the queen's couch and the king is red in the face and is saying, what are you doing? At that point, somebody finally, Harbona, gets, finally gets enough guts to come forward and say, there's a gallows out there, we ought to hang him. But he only does that in response to what's an obvious shift in power. And it's obvious that Haman is out, somebody else is going to be in, and maybe it'll be him, or maybe it'll be somebody else, but it's now safe to take Haman down. Until that time, nobody says a word. So what Mordecai has to do is change that dynamic. He's got to make the whole power regime in the empire switch. That's his, that's his problem. All right, so let's see what he does. And as I said earlier, just saying that the Jews get to fight back isn't going to do it. That, that's not going to be sufficient. So we're now down to verse 9. The king's scribes were summoned at that time. In the third month, which is the month of Sibon, on the 23rd day, and an edict was written according to all that Mordecai commanded concerning the Jews, to the satraps and the governments and the officials of the provinces from India to Ethiopia, 127 provinces, to each in its own script and to each people in its own language, and also to the Jews in their script and their language. Now notice that this goes out to two sets of people. Parallel sets of people in each of the provinces. It goes to the governing authorities in each province, but separately to the same province, another letter goes to the Jews. Which of course makes sure that it can't conveniently get lost in the bureaucracy. So now we're down to verse 10, right? And he wrote in the name of King Ahasuerus and sealed it with the king's signet ring. Then he sent the letters by mounted couriers riding on swift horses that were used in the king's service, bred from the royal stud, saying that the king allowed the Jews who were in every city to gather and defend themselves, to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate any armed force or people or province that might attack them, children and women included, and to plunder their goods. So notice what's being said here. They are allowed to gather, which means that they can form an army. They can form a militia, if you will. So the idea of the Jews getting together and organizing themselves is explicitly allowed. Furthermore, they are allowed to defend themselves against any person, any organization, whether that organization be private or governmental. Notice how it's written saying the king allowed the Jews who were in every city to gather and defend themselves, to destroy, to kill, and annihilate any armed force of any people or province that might attack them, children and women included, and to plunder their goods. On one day throughout all the provinces of the king, 
Hazarus on the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar. So the decree is for the same day that the original decree was formed. You're allowed to form an army or a militia or gather together and band together as, a, as an organized unit. You're allowed to take out anybody that comes against you, even if that somebody is a provincial governing body. Furthermore, you're allowed to kill all their women and children, and you're allowed to plunder their goods, which is exactly parallel to the original decree. Now, now what's, what's the upshot of this? The first decree went out, which says you're allowed to kill the Jews, you're allowed to kill their families, and you're allowed to plunder their goods. So you've all seen movies from World War II, where you get the thugs that you know, start coming around and you know, breaking windows in the Jewish shops and you know, saying, you know, on the, I'm not only going to kill you, but I'm going to rape your daughter before I kill her, and then I'm going to steal all your stuff. So this terror campaign has been going on now for two months. And the purpose of that terror campaign is to demoralize the Jews so that they don't fight back. In other words, they regard this whole thing as inevitable, and they fall into hopelessness and inaction. That's the purpose of that kind of a, of a decree. The idea of, of their property, you know, most people say, well, gee, once you're dead, what does it matter what happens to your property? It matters a great deal, because most people work all their lives to accomplish something. And the idea of everything you've accomplished in your life being erased, I mean, everybody's going to die. We're all going to die at some point. You know, you certainly would rather not have it at the hands of some thug, but it's something that's going to happen. But to die and then to leave no legacy, to leave nothing behind that you've built, to have no record of your life, that's total destruction. And by the way, that's what Yad Vashem is about in Israel. In the Holocaust Museum, it literally means a memory and a name. Because all of these people died and they left behind them no memory and no name. And so the whole purpose of that museum is to give them back a memory and a name so that there's a record that they've lived. So this decree, which is you get to kill them, you get to kill their entire family, and you get to wipe out everything they did, is intended to demoralize and terrorize the Jews. So what Mordecai does is he turns it right back around and he says, all that stuff you said about them, it's going to happen to you now. The thing that has always been the most dangerous thing in the world is government. And the pogroms and the Holocaust were all done by governments. So the first edict that went out had all of your local governments who were so inclined. I mean, they may not have been so inclined, but if they were so inclined, they had all the local governments looking at all that property that they had and said, huh, well, we'll just have a little state-sponsored roundup here, and we'll send them all up to the gas chambers, and we'll take all of their stuff, and we'll melt their teeth down for gold and all that kind of thing. Well, that's happened. What he's done here is he said, you know, all you local governments, you're in play too. It's the beginning of a counter terror campaign and letting them know that this idea of picking off the Jews is no longer risk-free. So that's thing one that he has done, is he sent this edict out and that's, that's his goal. And, and he's been very careful to send a copy both to the local government and to the Jews in every area. 
So again, there's no possibility that this thing will get lost through bureaucratic slip-ups. Verse 13, a copy of what was written was to be issued as a decree in every province being publicly displayed to all peoples and the Jews were to be ready on that day to take vengeance on their enemies. So the couriers mounted on their swift horses that were used in the king's service rode out hurriedly, urged by the king's command, and the decree was issued in Susa the citadel. Then Mordecai went out from the presence of the king in royal robes of blue and white, with a great golden crown and a robe of fine linen and purple, and the city of Susa shouted and rejoiced. The Jews had light and gladness and joy and honor, and in every province and every city, wherever the king's command and his edict reached, there was gladness and joy among the Jews, a feast and a holiday, and many from the peoples of the country declared themselves Jews for fear of the Jews had fallen on them. Let's look at what he just did. He sends this edict off, and then he puts on his best dress uniform, and he struts out of the palace and into the Jewish quarter. What he's saying there is there's a new sheriff in town. And he goes and struts off into the Jewish quarter right through town, and everybody gets to see, oh, there's a new regime in power. That's thing one that he does. Thing two that he does is he has a celebration. And the Jews everywhere have a big celebration, which is a formal announcement, if you will. Oh, you know that campaign of terror that you guys were waging against us? Well, King's X, it ain't going to happen anymore. Instead of being a bunch of demoralized, fearful people, we are now a people who are unified and we are going to have a big party as we get ready to fight back. What this is, is morale building, and it's also window dressing for the rest of the empire. Everybody can see now, oh, wait a minute, these aren't an oppressed slave people anymore. They are now someone who is organized and could be formidable. That's thing two and thing three that he's done. Thing one's the decree, thing two is he gets dressed up in the royal robes and goes strutting down the streets of the citadel. And then thing three is all these parties that get thrown all over the place. And oh, by the way, one of the things that obviously happens here is there are lots and lots of people who see which way the wind is blowing. Me? Anti-Semite? No, no, not at all. I'm a Jew. So the deal here is there are a lot of people who are just either neutral or going along with the thugs. In other words, the thugs who are the anti-Semites were riding high after the king's decree, and there's a whole lot of people out there that are just sort of going along, and those people are now falling away. So the only ones you got left are the real hardcore anti-Semites. Nine. Now in the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar, on the thirteenth day of the same, when the king's command and Egypt were about to be carried out, on the very day that the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain mastery over them, the reverse occurred. The Jews gained mastery over those who hated them. The Jews gathered in their cities throughout all the provinces of King Ahaz, where else to lay hands on those who sought their harm, and no one could stand against them, for the fear of them had fallen on all the people. All the officials of the provinces and the satraps and the governors and the royal agents also helped the Jews, for the fear of Mordecai had fallen on them. That's thing four. What Mordecai has done is, as I say, when he goes strutting out in his royal robes, he has said there's a new regime, and he's starting now to make his presence felt within the empire. And this has happened during the months between 
Savan and Adar. He has been conducting a campaign of increasing his influence and making sure that every government level in the empire knows you don't want to get crosswise of Mordecai. So all of these local government entities who had been at best neutral and at worst actively interested in participating suddenly realize that that's not a good career move in this empire right now. Verse 4, For Mordecai was great in the king's house, and his fame spread throughout all the provinces, for the man Mordecai grew more and more powerful. The Jews struck all their enemies with a sword, killing and destroying them, and did as they pleased to those who hated them. In Susa, the citadel itself, the Jews killed and destroyed 500 men, and also killed, and I'm not going to read all their names, they're just Persians, the ten sons of Haman, the son of Hamidatha, the enemy of the Jews, but they laid no hand on the plunder. That very same day, the number of those killed in Susa, the citadel, was reported to the king. And the king said to Queen Esther, notice what just happened here. Esther didn't go to the, to the king. The king went to Esther. Now he's in a position of saying, what happened? How did it go? And the king said to Queen Esther, in Susa, the citadel, the Jews have killed and destroyed 500 men and also 10 of the sons of Haman. What then have they done in the rest of the king's provinces? Now, what is your wish? It shall be granted you. And what further is your request? It shall be fulfilled. So notice again, when she came in to plead for the Jews, there, that, that was not there. That was missing. Now it's back. Which tells the king that A, the Jews are formidable. His queen is formidable. And if he's going to survive, he needs to make sure that the two of them don't get crosswise. Otherwise, it's really going to be bad because this is, this is a dangerous people and a dangerous woman. And Esther said, If it please the king, let the Jews who are in Susa be allowed tomorrow also to do according to this day's edict, and let the ten sons of Haman be hanged on the gallows. So the king commanded this to be done. A decree was issued in Susa, and the ten sons of Haman were hanged. The Jews who were in Susa gathered also on the 14th day of the month of Adar, and they killed 300 men in Susa, but they laid no hands on the plunder. What's going on here is nobody knows what's happened. Remember, this is horse traffic. So at this point, we don't know whether this has been successful anywhere except perhaps Susa. The king doesn't know. He's asking Esther, you know, what do you, get? What do you know? She doesn't know either. Mordecai doesn't know. So the request is, uh, King, let's keep this going until we find out how it came out. Because remember, the original edict was one day. And so what the, what the request is, we need to keep killing anti-Semites until we find out how this came out. That, that's the essence of that request. So they pick up a total of 800 in Susa. Verse 16, Now the rest of the Jews who were in the king's provinces also gathered to defend their lives and got relief from their enemies and killed 75,000 of those who hated them. But they laid no hands on the plunder. This was on the 13th day of the month of Adar, and on the 14th day they rested and made that day a day of feasting and gladness. But the Jews who were in Susa gathered on the 13th and on the 14th and rested on the 15th day, making that a day of feasting and gladness. Therefore the Jews of the villages who live in rural towns hold the 14th day of the month of Adar as a day of gladness and feasting, as a holiday, and as a day on which they send gifts of food to one another. Now this particular celebration is spontaneous. It rises up 
among the people. Now what we're going to see is it's going to be codified. 20. And Mordecai recorded these things and sent letters to all the Jews who were in all the province of King Ahasuerus, both near and far, obliging them to keep the 14th day of the month of Adar and also the 15th day of the same year by year, as the days on which the Jews got relief from their enemies and as the month that had been turned for them from sorrow into gladness and from mourning into a holiday, that they should make them days of feasting and gladness, days of sending gifts of food to one another and gifts to the poor. And again, this is what they're already doing. He's simply codifying it in a, in a directive. So the Jews accepted what they had started to do and what Mordecai had written to them. For Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of all the Jews, had plotted against the Jews to destroy them and had cast pur, that is cast lots, to crush and to destroy them. But when it came before the king, he gave orders in writing that this evil plan that he had devised against the Jews should return on his own head, and that he and his son should be hanged on the gallows. Therefore, they called these days Purim, after the term of Pur. Therefore, because of all that was written in this letter, and of what they had faced in this matter, and of what had happened to them, the Jews firmly obligated themselves and their offspring, and all who joined them, that without fail they would keep these two days according to what is written at the time appointed every year that these days should be remembered and kept throughout every generation, in every clan, province, and city, and that these days of Purim should never fall into disuse among the Jews, nor should the commemoration of these days cease among their descendants. Then Queen Esther, the daughter of Abihel, and Mordecai the Jew, gave full written authority confirming the second letter about Purim. Now notice what's happened. Mordecai has ratified what everybody did, said, let's do it, and now we have the queen under royal seal, saying the same thing. The dawn that I'm reading has an opinion of why this was done. This is the first general holiday that has been decreed since Moses. All of the other Hebrew holidays are Moses' holidays. This is the first new one. His opinion is, and I think it makes a lot of sense, that the reason that they approached it this way, as opposed to it simply being the memorial of a great victory and everybody had, you know, they, they tried to kill us, we won, let's eat, throw a party and then forget about it until forever. The reason that they codified it is because they remember what happened to the northern kingdom. Because remember, the northern kingdom went into exile and disappeared. The southern kingdom goes into exile and they have this great victory and the purpose of the victory is to prevent the southern kingdom from disappearing like the northern kingdom did. Hence, the first celebration during exile. By that or not, it's the opinion of the author of the dawn, I, I think it makes a great deal of sense because Mordecai has shown, as, as has Esther, extreme political savvy. These two are very, very sharp. And so the idea of there being a deeper purpose to this whole thing is, I think, probably pretty sound. But as I say, it's under the hand of the viceroy, and it's also under the hand of the queen. Verse 30. Letters were sent to all the Jews to the 127 provinces of the kingdom of Ahasuerus in words of peace and truth, that these days of Purim should be observed at their appointed seasons as Mordecai the Jew and Queen Esther ob obligated them. And as they had obligated themselves and their offspring with regard to their fast and their lamenting, the command of Queen Esther confirmed these practices of the Purim, and it was recorded in writing. The other thing this does, by the way, is every year 
all the Jews throughout Persia have a party, which reminds the anti-Semites of what happened. In other words, it's not just the Jews that are reminded, it is the ones who tried to kill them and themselves suffered a devastating loss. 75,000 people, 76,000 if you count those that were in Shushan, that's a lot of people. The idea here is no more anti-Semitism, at least public anti-Semitism in Persia. And as far as I know, and as far as the writer of the dawn knows, there was no more. It takes a crushing defeat to get rid of something like that, because if you only rough them up, what they do is they go back and lick their wounds and plot their revenge. Whereas if you crush them, it's done. That, that was, by the way, the United States attitude in World War II. If we just rough them up, we're going to have to do this again in 10 years. One of the things you'll notice is it's been 70 years now since anybody's had any problem with either Germany or Japan. So the idea of Purim is a couple of things. As I said, the, the idea that you're keeping alive the community of the Jews, but the other thing is you are graphically reminding everybody what happens if you try and do something to them. Chapter 10. King Ahasuerus imposed tax on the land and on the coastlands of the sea. This is Mordecai that's doing this. Now, these things are, are disjointed. In other words, you have the narrative and then these other things. This, this he, I think he's been doing all along. King Ahasuerus imposed tax on the land and on the coastlands of the sea, and all the acts of his power and might, and the full account of the high honor of Mordecai to which the king advanced him, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Medea and Persia? So Mordecai becomes the equivalent of a Daniel in his generation. For Mordecai the Jew was second in rank to the king Ahasuerus, and he was great among the Jews and popular with the multitude of his brothers, for he sought the welfare of his people and spoke peace to all his people. The translation that's in the dawn is Mordecai the Jew was second in rank to the king and he was great among the Jews and popular among many. Again, the idea there is a court Jew has a mixed legacy among his own people. Yeah, he does them a lot of good, but he's also part of the empire. And so there's mixed feelings. This is very much in the, in the Joseph tradition, although it's different than Joseph. See, because Joseph never bucks the king. Joseph does a really good job of making the Egyptian empire run well, but he never goes up against the king. In fact, when it comes time to bury his own father, he asks somebody else to go ask the king if it would be all right if he took a three-day pass and went and buried his father. There's parallels. But the personality is different. Joseph, definitely a protector of his people, definitely a Messiah figure, definitely saved them from starvation. But the thing about Joseph is the, the famine was over and they spent, what, another 17 years in Egypt. There's no reason that Israel couldn't have left Egypt during the time of Joseph's life, except Joseph didn't have, have it in him to request that his people be allowed to leave. It, it just wasn't in him. Not that he's bad, not that he's evil, it's just not his personality. Mordecai here has got, as does Daniel, by the way. Daniel's got a little grit to him. He's got the ability to go up against the king. The business with the lion's den and, and the business with the handwriting on the wall. Daniel is, is, a, is a Jew, he is not an Ephraimite. Mordecai is a Jew, he is not an Ephraimite.
And they're fierce. Okay? They're fierce. And he's got what it takes to plot against the king. This book of Esther, and, and as I say, I give full credit to Yoram Hazoni, who wrote the book The Dawn, that I got most of these insights from. He regards this as a treatise on how the Jews are to behave in exile. The Torah gives you a lot of information on how you behave in the land. The whole book of Deuteronomy is written about that. There's very little written about how to behave in exile, and the book of Esther is the primary treatise on that. A rabbinic commentary I read says there's, there's two parts of the Tanakh that will never perish. One is the Torah, and the other one is the book of Esther. And with that, would somebody like to close in prayer?